Hello and welcome to the Interior Design Business, the monthly podcast produced by the Interior Design Community for the Interior Design Community. I am Susie Rumbold of Tesuto Interiors and a past president of the British Institute of Interior Design. And I'm here with Jeff Hayward to examine the business issues and challenges faced by professional interior designers today. We're joined every month by a special guest who can help us shed light on our topic and provide practical advice to help you deal with difficult everyday issues. Today, it's all about hard hats and hard knocks. Yes, we're going to be looking at how, as a designer, you can successfully manage contractors to deliver great projects, good profit, and keep your sanity. Welcome to the interior design business. We're podcasting today from the luxury cinema beneath the experience center of IdeaWorks. And joining us for this conversation, I'm delighted to welcome Kia Stanford of London-based Kia Designs. Welcome, Kia. It's wonderful to be here, Jeff. So, Kia, welcome. Can you tell us a bit about your background? Well, my background came um, from actually working in an interior design store. Are you allowed to tell us which the store was? It was actually a store that unfortunately no longer exists. It was called Revelloid. It was on Upper Street in Islington, and I absolutely adored it. I worked there throughout my entire university years and definitely enjoyed it more than my history degree. (laughs) (laughs) So you worked there and then did you did you join them full time after you graduated? Yeah, the owner had been what he called commuting from New Zealand. And so it was a little bit difficult for him wow. to be able to take on some of the projects. We had a very distinct style and people really loved it. And they've been really asking for an interior design service that we've been getting these projects to come in and he just couldn't really do them anymore. And so since I've been helping out with them uh, for quite a few years by that point, um, he uh, very, very nicely asked me to stay on when I said that I was going to go somewhere else and sort of learn interior design. He was like, no, please don't go. So uh, it could be something to do with the fact that he also called me the Oracle and couldn't name any price without me. But apart from that, I'm sure it was my wonderful interior design. uh, (laughs) Sure it was. So, So having then started to take on some of these projects, how long did you do that before he decided to, to, to fold the, the company? Well, um, the interior design store carried on for a while after um, I left, but I was there for sort of um, 18 months and it really sort of started to falter um, around 2008. I don't know if anyone remembers, but that was a little mm-hmm. bit of a hard time. Bit of a, yeah. bit of a tough one. Um, so I actually set up my business on the uh, 31st of December 2008. Um, because yeah, he, he had been having having a few problems, and I was just like, um, "I'm good. I think we're gonna we're gonna move on," um, and sort of did the exact thing that you normally say not to do, and is just stride off onto your own. So you're just to put, you're just entering your eleventh year of business. Yes, so congratulations. That's really Thank outstanding. Thank you very much. What sort of projects are you into, Kia? We tend to do full scale refurbishments. I really enjoy being able to completely change how people see their homes. Um, for me, it's really exciting to be able to, especially if it's somewhere that they've lived for a while um, and they're really looking to now do something different. They've been struggling for a, for a little while with how it works. Um, I think that also um, clients who have gone through that process really understand what doesn't work, um, but they're still always struggling for what actually can work. And um, so that's always a really nice, they know the problem inside and out, but the solution is completely... Eludes them. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. Right, well, contractors, let me start by asking the question, what, in your view, Susie, constitutes a good contractor? 
So I was giving this some thought and I decided actually it would be might, might possibly be easier to talk about what doesn't constitute a good contractor. Right. Um, and there were three key things that I kind of picked out and I don't know whether key you want to jump in at any point and add to this. The first one was those contractors who are allergic to paperwork because if their record keeping is not up to scratch, they haven't priced things accurately, they can't manage the process accurately, they can't confirm what prices they've put in for things, it's going to end in tears at some point. The second type, I think, is the what we call the nickel and dimer, the contractor that goes in cheap and then just his, his sole role in life is just to be there gathering as many additional extra items as he possibly can so that he can quietly nickel and dime the poor client into the into an early grave. And the third type of contractor, which I think are terrible, are the technophobes. Um, unfortunately, there are still some contractors out there who are very old school. They really don't do emails. They don't, they don't respond to any sort of technology. They can't look at drawings. They can't look at schedules. They can't look at, they can't operate um, a Dropbox. It, you know, it just becomes so difficult in this day and age to try and deal with someone that's just such a dinosaur. Really, mm, it, really, it really is unfortunate that that is still a thing. Yeah, for for us, when we were going through and we were chatting to the team, the most overriding thing that came out was. Um, Everyone is human and there's always going to be mistakes. The one thing that we all picked out is just like, if you are terrible at communicating and whether that be that you want to do things via email, that you're going to receive WhatsApp messages, that they're going to go onto a base camp and they're going to message back. I don't mind if you're going to be giving me bad news. That can be part of the process, but you just need to be able to communicate. Coming at the end of a project and saying, oh, well, we had this problem and this problem. It's like, when, when on earth did we ever hear about that? We didn't. Like communication um, is the key to a good contractor um, because they're not going to take everything to heart. They're not going to be the person that sort of like bites back at you when you say like, oh, you've missed this off. It's just like, well, you didn't give me that information. Nope. No, that's a, that's a big no it from me. There. Exactly. Yeah. So, um, yeah, people who are um, detail orientated, um, who are able to communicate um, in a way that that is very clear um, and that reads tender documentation. Well, I was going to say, I don't it's, know it's about that. It's, it's perfectly quite okay difficult. for a contractor to turn around and say, I'm really sorry, I, I missed this. Because if they tell you early enough, you can go back to the client and say, look, I'm really sorry about this, but he just didn't price in for it. And yeah, it's usually that, that will, that will know, happen. And you can manage that process and it happens. You know, they're big, complicated things. But the thing is, is if their communication and also, as you said, their paperwork has been good enough at the beginning, then you can literally line by line go through and say, ah, oh, yes, I can see that you didn't price for that. And therefore I can go back to, you know, as you said, you can liaise and sort of say like, you can, like we can see they didn't do that. So that definitely is a... Yeah, is a big one. Yeah, no, definitely, definitely. How do you go about finding a good contractor, Kia? Um, we have a few contractors that we have worked with for quite a few years, but we also do get approached by a lot of contractors. Um, we tend to, uh, we have now a database of contractors that we can bring in to quote for different projects. We often spread them between different contractors. So we're not always working with the same people and we will tend to pair, you know, different things to different projects. In the end, the thing is, is the, the client does have the ultimate veto over who that they decide to use. So if they've brought somebody in, then then that's sort of the way where you go and you often 
don't necessarily get an opportunity to to be able to find that contractor because we're working with quite a few architects at the moment, which means that the project has been will be tendered out. And even though we're part of the initial set up for it, it's not still something that we're going to have much control over. Um, but we will still interject our opinion about anyone that we thought maybe may not be suitable. Yeah, I mean, we, we tend to do the same sort of thing. We get approached and we always make a point of actually if they, if they sound as though they're, you know, hopeful and we like the sound of them, you know, you, they sound good on the phone and they sound as though they're quite switched on. We'll go and see a project that they're currently working on. Um, so we don't then put stuff out to anyone that we haven't already seen their work. And we try and, as Kia said, match up. So if someone might be particularly strong, for example, on joinery or finishing or basements or whatever it happens to be, so that then you know if you have a particular type of project that comes in and you do need to either come up with a, a tender list yourself or you need to contribute to an architect's tender list, you've got people that you can you can slot in. Yeah, we do get referrals as well. Like with one of the basement companies that we worked with, the actual basement company were, were very good. The in interior fit out company that went with it um, but it's um it's quite nice to be able to sort of split out in that way that um when you've you know got a very busy street and everyone on the street says that they are extremely happy with the basement company and how things have gone you're just like magic basement company because you always get somebody complaining about cracks in their walls and things like that it's about building a trusted team yeah absolutely. Yeah. and then the other thing we do is we ask other people so if i'm looking for contractors i'll go and I'll, I'll approach architects that we work with and i'll approach project managers that we work with and say you know we're looking for someone that can take on x y and z in such and such an area anyone that they've come across recently that they'd recommend and they're usually pretty happy to pass on recommendations too so there's very much a sort of community networking thing going on i think in terms of a new area or finding an alternative contractor because the one you'd like to use is busy, other tips that you might employ? Would you find out what they're like in delivering CPD, for instance, and then think mm, they know what they're talking about? Or is that a bit unreliable? Not really. For, for a contractor, no. Maybe for, for other parts of, of a project, yes. Like that would be interesting that they're clearly very well thought of in their fee field. But um, no, in general, um, I think yeah, Susie's idea of going and having a look at some of the work they are working on, um, you can tell a lot from how a building site is organised oh, um, as to whether they care at all. Well, because messy sites too mean that things go missing. You know, a plumber, a, a contractor will take a big delivery of, of sanitary wear and plumbing items for a, a house that might have five or six bathrooms in it. And if things aren't kind of checked off at the point of delivery and everything organised and managed and, and put away safely a things go missing and b they'll deny that they've ever received it and it just things get slowed down you know immeasurably yeah. from that point onwards so you're absolutely right a tidy site where with you know cables strapped down and hard hats available and all that sort of stuff just you know just gives you confidence right from the off that this is someone that can actually manage a team of people he can keep his people safe he can keep your people safe and your client at the end of the day will be happy and creates the right impression for your client too. Absolutely Yeah, right. funnily enough, we have found uh, recently that there are quite a few contractors that we've been working with that um, use Instagram really well to actually provide within their stories um, a good idea of what is going on on site, um, which is uh, difficult to do because, you know, it always is going to look like a building site, 
up until pretty much the final moment. And so um, being able to explain what they're doing, going into something, you do feel a lot more um, connected to what they are doing. You can see the process that they have taken to be able to come to that. Um, and also they've been doing things where they've been problem solving w throughout that, that process, which is great to see because you can see that they're not just going to be like, yeah, sorry, uh, turned up and um, yeah, no, Katie took it in, but you it know, doesn't she, didn't, she, she didn't really look at the paperwork and you're just like, great. That's really interesting. So the social media profile of the contractor is something you can look at as you would do a potential employee and think. A assuming, assuming they're tech savvy, of course. Yeah, yeah, which also does come into that thing of like, are they, are they able to, like, that's another point of communication. They are then communicating to everybody in a way that they need to be able to be very clear because they've got a lot of people that are following them that aren't necessarily interested. So they've got to communicate very clearly and make it interesting. Uh, they're also, yeah, problem solving on the fly, showing you things that, are, uh, and you can spot a lot more in the, the bare bones of how something's going together. You can take some very nice pictures of some very crappy rooms and um, make it look like the finishing on them is superb. Um, but when you're seeing it go in, you can tell whether someone's fudged it. Yeah, we, we also have worked with contractors that will do things like put in a webcam for their clients, particularly if you have clients working abroad. And that's fine, of course, but the webcam only ever looks at one view of one room. So Stan the man is looking very busy in front of the webcam at all times, and the rest of the project is going to hell in a handbasket behind the scenes. <laughs> I have never heard of that. That would be... <laughs> That would be almost too tempting to just like keep it on, on one <laughs> person's computer, just like at all times. It's like, what are they doing today? Not much. Yeah. Quite. OK, so once you've found a good contractor, how do you keep them on the straight and narrow? I think it's probably it's probably all about um, the paperwork. It's just making sure that you get a program out of them, that they've actually given you the paperwork that allows you to assess what they're doing against because you've got two things you've got time and you've got money basically on a building project and, and a product that you're trying to produce at the end of that process and so in order to keep your contractor on the straight and narrow you need to be measuring his his or her performance against the program that they've provided so this is not something you've imposed on them this is something that they've given you you know yes I will have finished this by week six so if they haven't finished it by week six you need to be able to kind of go well what's going on here? Why is this not happening? So you're, you're obviously looking at what they're doing against their program and you're also looking at how they're doing against the money that they're actually charging. Yeah. It's very important. Those two things just really do yeah. make or break Absolutely. a project. Yeah. Um, and I, I don't know if depending on, because sometimes we do valuations, but quite often with smaller jobs, it'll just be this contractor will say, no, I just want a series of stage payments. So you have to be very careful to make sure that the stage payments are not getting ahead of the physical work on site. Yep. And is that your responsibility to set that schedule or is it a partnership? We don't tend to um, set those kinds of schedules um, initially. What we will do is advise the clients in going through um, at points where we can can make a, a good judgment call as to whether you know whether things are being easily hit. What we do try and ask contractors to do is provide um, some very clear benchmarking within their pricing, so that we know that, as you said, things need to be finished by a certain time. That should be very easily viewed to the naked eye to a per to a person who is completely lay and so what we have is we have our office manager who often will go through and I'm just like do you think you could tell that x y and z has been done at this point and if they're like 
no, then we're going to have a problem because that's the sort of thing that you need not only yourself to be um, looking after, but the contractor is often contracted directly to the client. So for us, it means that that thing that they need to be able to see something has happened. Um, and if, you know, the first fixed electrical hasn't been done and they can genuinely not see that any wires have been run, you're going to have, you know, you can see that that is something that is tangible within the building site. Um, and so trying to set those kind of, of points combined with a site visit where we can then sort of go around with them and sort of be like, mm, running a bit slow on this, you know, and can see that these pieces haven't gone in that we've already, you know, that we know have definitely been delivered onto site, then you can sort of help and advise from that point um, whether those payments need to change because they shouldn't be getting ahead of themselves. The one thing that can be quite tricky though is things that you've paid for that are not on site yet. And I was thinking about things like large deposits for joinery packages, for example. You know, on a big house, you might have two or 300,000 pounds worth of joinery. And you know, the contractor, the subcontractor might want 50,000 pounds deposit up front, so the client's paid that over, um, you would need to see evidence that that stuff is actually being produced in the joinery workshop or there are ways where you know funds can be guaranteed by being held in escrow. Um, we tend not to get involved in that and on projects of that size we would generally recommend to the client that they have an independent quantity surveyor who will actually be monitoring and managing that side of the project if there are really substantial sums of money at stake. How common is that for a QS to be involved on the projects you work in? Um, it tends to only be about, about depending on the time, about 10 to 20% of the projects that I'd we're working that, on. Yeah. Um, so anything where we're doing like large scale um, uh, extensions, uh, we've got projects that we're working on at the moment that's got a large roof extension um, and uh, like beautiful extension that's going onto the, the back that has a QS um, that was brought in really early. Um, so that uh, the clients could also see very, like we'd obviously given them a rough idea of pricing um, and then the architects had given them a rough idea of pricing. The QS came in and was just like, okay, this is where you need to be. And they, they've been able to allow the budget because of that. So um, yeah, it doesn't tend to be all of them, but for, as you said, when there's really large sums of money that could then just um, disappear off, that's when they, they do tend to become really valuable. Yeah. But at a smaller stage, it, it's often just not worth it. It is that sort of thing of just like the amount that you're going to save in, in it's not going to save you any money. It's going to cost you a lot more. If, is your peace of mind worth that? Then possibly it might be, you know, if you're feeling particularly nervous over the project. Um, but we don't tend to find that it's for a lot of our smaller projects. On some of our smaller projects, though, we do sometimes, again, just as a sort of benchmarking exercise, involve a QS just to produce a cost plan at the very outset. So we sort of show them the, the initial drawings and just say, tell me how much this will cost. And so that you know you've got a sum of money, let's pick a number out of thin air and say £200,000. And then once it goes out to tender, you can see where the contractors are coming back. You've got something to benchmark it against so that you know whether what the contractors are coming back with is reasonable. And clients can often find that a really comforting kicking off point, you don't have to go any further than just that initial exercise with QS. You don't then 
have to get them to do the on-site monitoring if the client doesn't want to. But sometimes the client will kind of go, well, actually, we could, you can buy, like in the same way that you can buy in ad hoc interior design services, mm. you can also buy in ad hoc quantity surveying services. So it can be a really useful thing, if they, particularly if you've got a client that's a bit tricky. You know, you get another pair of eyes in to look at it, to look at the figures, look at the progress on site, just do the occasional valuation. And it can be, it can be of enormous benefit for everyone's peace of mind and it kind of gets you off the hook. Yeah, it also is that thing that when you've got something that, um, especially if you've got, we work with a, a lot of clients who are used to working in other areas of the world where they will be used to seeing much lower numbers for building um, for building anything, and so when the, you then come in and you're just like, oh yes, the you know I expect the works just for you know a very very simple um, refurb, no um, FF&E involved at all. Yeah, I expect we're going to be looking somewhere between 100 and 120 thousand, and they're just like, are you? kidding me kidding that is ridiculous like no that's what you know that's just madness and i'm just like yeah that is how much it is going to cost and if they do sort of do the thing of like oh well we don't think so i'm like well let's bring in someone who's completely independent and let's see what they think and then when they come in they're just like yeah it'll be about 110,000 you're just like oh, it's almost like i've done this before and then the <laughs> next thing that happens is they find some rubbish contractor off the back of a skip and get them to price it, and the contractor says, "Yeah, I can do that for seventy-five. Yeah, we, we've. And then you have you like have a contractor moment. imposed on you who it's then so cannot deliver the project for that amount of money. The dynamic of that situation is pretty hell. unhealthy. It's hell. Yeah, it's it's really, yeah, it's it's, it's so stressful that it's um, one of those things where we have um, cut clients loose, of, like of just being like, if you do go with this. Um, you know, here is all of the paperwork and on your head be it, because I, I just won't put my team through that. I've just have done too many of them to find where you're just like. The thing is that somebody always pays. So what will happen is if the contractor is doing it for £75,000, the client's not going to end up paying and you end up spending so much of your time's team to try and bring that project to deliver that for that £75,000, that you know you can't charge the fee that you should be charging for all that extra on-site supervision and everything else, all the time that you're spending on revisions and resourcing and repricing and all the stuff that you end up having to do. So the interior designer ends up paying, and that just isn't fair. Is that a way to salvage that kind of situation by saying to the client, well, if you impose that contractor, my fees go up by X percent? It's, no, it's really, it's that thing of just like, if you decide to take it through at that point, often with that kind of thing, the client has, uh, it's often the first time they've done it or they haven't done it in a very long time. And so they will have forgotten just how hellish a terrible contractor can be. They all falls to the interior designer. Yes, no, A, a it's awful and B, it's always the interior designer's fault. So somehow you end up being the bad guy, we even you even though you're the one that's ended up it's because we're always the last person. There. We're always the last person there. And so it's very, very easy to sort of um, say, well, you started it and you finished it. So therefore, everything that's gone in between clearly must be on you. Despite and the fact that you've <laughs> imposed this terrible contractor on me. Yeah. Mm. So best advice, walk away. I, I will. I will walk away. Yeah. Um, and and as hard as that can be, because a lot of the time you've poured a lot of effort into it by that point already. Um, and 
for us it is like it's so awful to see that it's just not going to happen and it's not going to look like that and it's going to take twice as long and all of these things um if we can't at that point sit down and have a really good conversation with the client where it's just like come on like this is not going to work out the way that you think it is but when clients sometimes are so nervous about the decisions they're making and you've sold them on something that's a little bit brave and you know a little bit perhaps out of their comfort zone the worst thing that can happen is for a contractor and you know they don't mean to probably but you know they they'll put in some throwaway comment and all of a sudden then the, the client's really nervous about the decision that they've made. Mm. And again, that will slow things down. You end up having to get into a whole world of pain with, you know, vacillating over, over altered decisions and altered schemes and things. And it causes, it causes, you know, cost and it causes delay. Yeah, I mean, for us, the because we do have a centralised um, system of communication, it is one of those things that our contractors do know to, to feed anything back into that. Um, and we will often recap any of the times that we've gone onto site, just be like, okay, just to confirm, we're going to be moving X, Y, and Z from here to here. Um, we did have a contractor years um, ago who, who didn't do that. Um, they had a problem on site, which would have been absolutely fine. Uh, we were putting in um, some concealed valves underneath uh, a window, uh, but we found that actually that they had for some unknown reason put a lintel underneath the window as well as on top of it. I don't know. Um, it wasn't really supposed to be there, but it did mean that everything had to move down by a centimetre and a half. Absolutely fine. Contractor asked the client. The client said, yes, that seems absolutely fine. No one told me. No one told me that that was moving. No one therefore informed the tiler that the entire pattern of all of the tiles uh, needed to be one and a half centimeters less. So instead of a beautiful, large format, big tile just above the bath, they have a silicon seal a centimetre of tile, a grout line, and then a big tile. And I was just like, and she literally looked at me uh, on the sort of day when the tile, and she was just like, they've done it all wrong. And I was like, why is this only, she went in, laser measure, why is this only this high? Why has the bath been moved down? Why has this been moved down? And she was like, oh yeah, I forgot to mention that they did say this. And I was just like, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And how far are we off? And I was just like, yeah, by the amount that you moved it. And she just sort of looked at me and she was like, this is all my fault. Well, at least she admitted it. And because I was a, a lot of clients wouldn't. And it would, yeah. I and mean, then it, was, it would, again, it would be all your fault. I know. And a lot of the time it also um, emotionally ends up being like your fault. And you do, you can very, very much feel put upon that you do want to deliver, um, a, you know, the design that you the agreed perfect, on on the beginning. The perfect thing. Yeah. And the thing that, that you know is going to massively improve their life is going to really bring them joy. It's going to do all of the things that you really wanted to do at the beginning. Um, but yeah, it's one of those things that, uh, yeah, she did the stand there. And she was like, I'm going to have to look at that. And I was like, yeah, you are. Yeah. <laughs> Can't even pretend to not be, not, not be funny about that. I was like, yeah, it's going to be really shit, isn't it? And she was just like, oh, damn it. Like, I just, she was like, I just didn't think. And I was like, I know that's, that's 100% why we were here is because is those small details and all it took. And the thing is, is the Tyler hadn't done anything wrong. The, you know, the plumber hadn't done anything yeah. wrong when he moved the, the like, it's just that combination. So I'm reading then from what you're saying that you will only work with contractors that will work with Basecamp. We have had uh, one of the, the finishing contractor on one of the basements that we did 
was a nightmare to work with through through Basecamp. But for us, it um, the thing is, is because it does work through email. Yes, it is that thing of just like if you can't send an email, even to just an email that I've told you, that's a bunch of letters and numbers that you can easily save as Kia designs, then how are we ever going to communicate? Like. We've got a project on in Saudi Arabia at the moment. The contractor has been absolutely fantastic at getting on there. He manages to comment on the right things. He uploads the right plans. He asks the right question. He comes back to us really quickly. He's downloaded the app onto his phone. It's really useful. We haven't done it to make everybody's lives miserable. Oh, no, of course We've not. done it specifically to be able to make sure that everyone has the right information. Um, and it's really funny to see when they then do something and they haven't gone through that system and they haven't gone through base camp and something goes wrong and then we pull them up on it they're really interested in using it the next week really interested how funny yeah um and so it you know it it does it does work for us it does mean that there's and the thing is it doesn't have to be that specific system it can be any way but that co communication just needs to be there i don't I have a wonderful array of pictures in my WhatsApp download folder that is uh, fantastic versions of where would you like this back box on this wall. I don't mind how you're going to ask that question. So long as you ask. So long as you ask, because a lot of the time it is just that something else is happening and they might be the contractor that's also brought in for the main part of the building work, but they're not doing the finishing. So we won't have told them that actually where they're putting in that light switch on that wall is going to be in a specific place on a set of panelling because they're not doing the panelling. So why would we bother to give them that information? But then moving it three centimetres over means that it's cutting in through the panelling. Well, that's just going to look rubbish. So um, I don't mind how they communicate. I just, just want somebody yeah. who is going to do that. And same with the client. So what can an interior designer do to help contractors? I think really the best thing we can do to help our contractors is to produce accurate, detailed paperwork. So detailed specifications, uh, detailed um, drawings, dimension drawings, fully dimensioned drawings. And also uh, from a quality assurance point of view, we also produce workmanship clauses. So on the top of all our schedules, I mean, on really big jobs, sometimes we use the national building um, uh, specification. But on smaller jobs, which is just a program where you fill in things, you know, you go through and, and work out what you're going to do in that job. And it covers everything from the width of grout lines to the amount of deviation allowed in joinery. It's, it's a really detailed thing. But you can do sort of minor versions of that just by putting some standard workmanship clauses. So, for example, you might have a couple of paragraphs at the start of your uh, decorative schedule saying how many coats of paint, how many coats of undercoat, what prep you expect, you know, et cetera, et cetera, so that and hopefully all this stuff is stuff you're never going to need to refer to again. But if the contractor does mess it up, you take it out of your bottom drawer and you use it to beat him to, you know, <laughs> to death with um, because he hasn't bothered to read it. And, you know, it's, it's, a, it's a stick with which to beat him, basically. And it allows you to say, you priced in for this. This is what you signed on for. You haven't delivered. What are you going to do about it? Yeah, I think um, being able to provide... Um, any kind of accuracy that means that it, it gives them a lot more confidence that um, that you're you're on the ball, that you are actually going through everything, that you um, are also going to work with them as a team. So if they then you know are able to come back and add anything, just like oh well, I did see that we hadn't you know you hadn't specified anything for this. It's like fantastic. I will love a contractor who goes through our tender documents and pulls out something that isn't there because it does mean again 
going back to what we said right at the beginning, that they are really interested in that detail work. Um, and it isn't always the case on site, but you know, it is nice to see that they are going to be able to to really pull in and and really go into the the minutiae of, mm. of everything that you've given them. That and it detail. also helps you to manage your variations because you can, if you can see when they've priced it up in the first instance that they're charging, let's say, 100 quid to put a light fitting in and then the client decides that they want four more light fittings and the contractor suddenly comes back and says that's going to be 800 quid. You yeah. can go back to his original tender document and say, but hang on a minute, you were only charging us £100 last time. Now, there may Specificity be, is, there may is be a particularly good reason why they're in a very difficult position or he has to run in a load of extra cabling. There might be, but he needs to be able to justify why he's charging that price. And that allows you, again, to, to manage the process and to look good and professional in front of the client. It gets the best product for the best price for your client, which is ultimately what we're trying to do. And where do you think contractors sort of have issues with interior designers on site and, and why? It's it's definitely not the majority, but there is still very much um, an idea when um, you come on site as an interior designer that um, you are there to fluff things and to make it just look pretty in the end. And uh, contractors can often have... Um, I mean, we worked with a contractor who was a misogynistic piece of shit. And to the point that um, one of our we sat down with the clients and I was just like, we have worked so hard to get them to do this and they are just not going, they're just not doing it. And the client actually said to me, um, she said, I just don't think he likes taking instructions from women. And I was like, and we think that's acceptable, do we? And I'm like, that is just disgusting that you think that that is okay. And so... Um, well, at that point, what did she expect you to do about it? And um, what was she going to do about it to solve the problem that well, she created? Well, he hadn't listened to her either. Um, and he also hadn't turned up for um, her husband's several meetings that he had set on, on weekends um, and things like that. And so it was just like the, the level that they were willing to, to put up with was, um, was impressive. Um, did say a lot for... It was just, it was just very disconcerting that somebody would um, very eloquently say that someone is just not going to listen to you because you're a woman. And I was like, yeah, it doesn't happen as much, but you definitely find in the tender stage um, of going around, you do really need to, we have a lot of initial contractors who will try and come around and poke holes in, in what you've designed, in what you've designed. Yeah. and um, just, oh, have you thought of this? And it's like, yes. But, you know, my thing is often it's almost like we've done it before, right? And they're just like, oh, yeah. But sometimes, too, if, you, if you're with a subcontractor, you might be talking to a plumber about how to you know, position something or, you know, what the standard heights are for something. I can't think of a, a good example. And you'll be counteracting every objection that he's making because they will always want to do it the easiest way for them. Mm. And so you might be saying, well, no, you can't put that there because we've got some beautiful panelling going in or there's a tile-up stand or whatever it, whatever it might be. And then 10 minutes later, you'll be having the same conversation on a different set of topics with the electrician and the plumber will be standing beside you nodding because all of a sudden you've won his respect because he suddenly realised that you actually do know what you're talking about. Not only do you know what, he's, what you're talking about when it comes to the plumbing, you also know what you're talking about when it comes to the electrical, the joinery, the plastering, the cornicing, it's, it's the flooring. <sighs> 
it's a fight that you shouldn't have to keep having and it is infuriating. I do tend to find that it's a lot more exhausting on projects where clients have um, either decided to project manage it themselves or have decided to subcontract out to lots of different people because you end up finding it as like children with toys on a building site where they are just like, well, I can't do this because they can't do that. I'm like, well, I've got a lot of other projects where they've managed to work it out um, and have many a time just pulled them all into the room and just sort of been like, okay, this is just not a dick measuring contest and I am really uninterested in any more that is going to be said. So you can just get on with it and you have 10 minutes to sort out what the solution is, otherwise you're all off site. I do think though the sad fact is that there there is still a lot of misogyny on building sites with particularly younger women that go on to, you know, go onto sites. We had um, my senior designer um, was badly bullied by a project manager actually across the length of one entire project which should never have happened and she was so she never said anything to me because I would have I would have sorted him out but anyway she didn't she she put up with it and she went all the way through and she actually did she won his respect at the end to such an extent we went on to do three more projects large projects with the same team and you know he never he never gave her any lip again but that first six months she went through with him was just awful and I only found out about it after event after the event and I felt terrible really bad that I'd allowed that to happen to one of my team any other advice for dealing with it? Um, don't put up with it. Don't, don't. I've had it happen, yeah, with junior designers um, and things. It's just like, stick to your guns. If you have, um, and also a lot of the time it's because they actually haven't checked anything. So our first thing is, and I, you know, sort of say to my team, it's just like, I promise you, you have done the work. I will send you onto site and I'm not going to send you on the, onto site to fail. Maybe a little bit. Because, you know, sometimes, you know, I'm not going to do everything for you. I'm not going to hold your hand throughout all of it. But you're not, you've done the work. I can promise you those tender documents. I've looked over them. You've done the work. They're not going to be perfect. But if your first thing is, have you checked the tender documents? And they haven't, then you know that it's just like they're just trying to to not, often just knock your confidence. And um, it's just like, you've done the work, you're on it. I promise you, you're going to be able to nail it. And and, and if, if the contractor has got a point, don't ever be bullied into making a snap decision on something. You always have the position where you can retreat and say, I need to go back to the office and check that, or I need to speak to the client about that. Don't allow yourself to be bullied. And it's easier said than done, but that's, that would be my advice. Great advice. Thank you. Now, managing contractors is one area that can drive any interior designer mad, but as a professional, it's important to stay cool, calm and collected no matter what the pressures of the job. So, Kia, what do you do outside of interior design to reduce stress levels and maintain your sanity? Well, I, I actually... Um, uh, I attend circus training, so I am yeah, pretty much planning to run away with the circus. Uh, yeah, so last term we did aerial trapeze, uh, trapeze, silks and rope. I'm also scared of heights, so I like Whoa. doing things that challenge me. And uh, so that was absolutely fantastic. And this semester we're doing um, tumbling, handstands and So this is like key stage two balance. you're up to now. Yeah, this is all of like the beginning intro stuff. I've done um, pole dancing for about th three and a half years now. So I'm pretty like strong in terms of like um, upper cool, body strength. Be awesome. and, yeah, like doing anything where it's just like somebody's just like, can you pull yourself up on that? I'm like, 
yes, I can. Getting into this loft, no problem. And so that's always a like good fun. But yeah, we're doing um, the aerial trapeze was the one that I was most scared of because. So um, tell us a bit about it. How high up are you? And, you... and are you working with a partner or? No, you do have you do still have a harness on, but it's very much just to make you fall slower, not stop you falling. And so the whole idea is you do have to fall. And uh, so yeah, you learn all of like the initial basics. And yeah, we've been doing some more floor stuff this time. And um, but I knew that since I had never been able to do a cartwheel as a kid, I was just like, this is going to be really awful. And it's been great. That it's really fantastic, and we're learning how to do yeah. We'll do acro balance next, which is like balancing on other people. So um, stunning. And this so. helps you switch off. It does. I. I yeah. It's it's exhausting. It really is. Um, but it does. Um, you can't think about anything else. It's not where anything's going to be able to, you know, get into your thoughts. You can't be, uh, you know, 12 feet up in the air, swinging upside down by only your knees, and sort of be like, oh, I wonder if those light fittings have been delivered. That's just not going to happen. You really are focused on what you are doing at that moment. And so for that reason, it's, it's, it's a great way of being able to refresh yourself. Brilliant. Thank you, Kia. And thanks also to you, Susie, for those very valuable insights. Next month, we'll be talking about design education and roots into the profession in the company of KLC's founder, and principal, Jenny Gibbs. Before we go, let me thank IdeaWorks again for their hospitality. It's a wonderful showroom to visit for ideas and tech inspiration. So please do check them out at ideaworks.co.uk. You can find the interior design business on Spotify, Apple Podcasts and on-demand services everywhere. This episode of the interior design business is a Wildwood and Alfie Media production. (laughs) 